Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I think the key responsibility here was recognizing that there has been Severe shortages compared to our eastern suburbs counterparts in Western Sydney hospitals for many years, um, for many different categories of treatments. Unfortunately, I think this is going to expose the underinvestment over many, many years that's gone into our public health system. Hello, lovely people. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me this week, down the line from Sydney, uh, Michelle Rowland, who is the Shadow Minister for Communications, and also Chris Bowen, who is the Shadow Minister for Climate and Energy. And regular listeners will know normally we would be drilling massively into these guys' portfolio responsibilities. That would be the normal conversation we would have on this pod. But I've gathered them both because... Uh, they have been literally at the epicentre of the Delta outbreak in Sydney over the last couple of months. I think both of you didn't come up to Parliament. Yeah, you were both at home. So, uh, you know, they've been managing things at the local level and uh, in lockdown Canberra, I feel a distance from that, the reality of that. So I wanted to uh, have a conversation with these two guys to, uh, you know, basically explain what has been going down in Western Sydney over the last couple of months. But we'll get there. Let's start, though, Michelle, um, and I'll ask Chris to do the same in a tick. Just tell the listeners what part of Sydney you represent. So explain the, you know, the electorate, the suburbs, you know, give give a little potted picture. Sure. So I'm the member for Greenway. Greenway covers mostly... Uh, is covered mostly by the Blacktown local government area, but in the south, some of what is known as the Cumberland local government area, which I share also a bit with Chris. And Greenway is a long, thin electorate that's nestled basically in between Old Windsor Road, so it borders uh, the hills area and uh, the railway line and uh, the Great Western Highway. So um, for your uh, your listeners who would be from all over Australia. Um, it is basically Western Sydney, but more sort of the northern end of mm-hmm. Western Sydney. So it covers some very old uh, areas, including Blacktown, which uh, is a historic uh, settlement. Uh, but in the northern part of the electorate, areas that even five years ago were farms and paddocks are basically entirely redone as uh, new suburbs. Um, So this is really the fringe of northwest Sydney and it is growing exponentially and uh, continues to do so at a pace. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a very diverse electorate as well. I have um, the Australian Sikh Association 
located in my electorate. Uh, there is a big Sikh uh, temple or Gurdwara, as it's known, very diverse, many people from the subcontinent, uh, but many other parts uh, of the world um, as well. So very diverse, diverse also in terms of uh, socioeconomic uh, challenges in many ways uh, and uh, a really, I think, slice of Australia in uh, one little piece. Mm. Mm. Chris? Yes, yeah, so I'm just to the south of Michelle. We share a border, um, so a very similar part of Western Sydney. Uh, the city of McMahon you know, uh, has Fairfield in it, a big chunk of Fairfield City, most of Fairfield, but also I represent four local government areas, all of them in in the harshest lockdown at the moment. So Fairfield, Cumberland, Blacktown, that's, I represent the sort of southern part of Blacktown City called Minchinbury, and uh, Penrith, again, the southern parts of Penrith City, so St Clair and Erskine Park. Um, so very similar, very diverse electorate, got very old parts. The primary school I went to is one of the oldest in Australia, a Smithfield Public School, established in 1850, um, but also you know, a lot of new developments, a lot of 80s developments and highly multicultural. I claim to be the member for the most multicultural area in Australia. Others dispute that, um, but uh, I claim it, um, you know, and all the waves of immigration, including the most recent African immigration and Middle Eastern immigration, strongly represented, but very diverse uh, community, just like Michelle's, uh, and really, as you said, in the epicentre at the moment. Mm. Okay, so uh, like I said, we'll drill down into a bunch of specifics, but just give me the overview, Michelle. What's the last? It's it's really, I guess it's is it is it eight weeks? It'd be eight. It's it might even be more than that. Ten weeks. Ten weeks. For some for some down. reason, I'm thinking ten. Yeah, and I think the mood has changed over each of those weeks, um, and I've sensed that as I've done virtual community meetings as I've been doing outbound calls. I have a whole team of people called the Greenway Community Care Team. We do outbound calls uh, just about every day, just seeing if people are okay. Just to give you a sense of that, during the Olympics, we were dialing um, older people at home who were very happily sipping some sparkling Moscato and watching the Olympics on the couch uh, to small businesses who don't think they are going to survive and may not have survived um, even at this stage. Um, so uh, a really diverse range of experiences at any given time. Uh, the last couple of nights as I've been doing virtual meetings with everyone from rotary groups to uh, you know, different uh, communities, I did one with uh, the Filipino uh, community the other night, I feel a sense of both anger but anticipation coming on. Um, there's anger that a lot of what has happened could have been avoided. There's great frustration from people who are doing home learning, uh, particularly with the holidays, come, school holidays coming up as well. Um, but at the same time, there is a sense that you know, Greenway is actually doing really well in terms of vaccination rates mm-hmm. um, right across every suburb. Um, I think... Probably the lowest mean percentage is around 75% first dose. So this is a very smart electorate that understands, as I have said all along, this is our one shot out of lockdown. And I'm sure uh, Chris could attest to that too. You would not have bigger advocates for getting vaccinated than the members in these lockdown areas. And I think the vast majority of people get it. But it's been a rainbow of moods. Um, mm. And uh, I wonder where we are going to go next. There's, there's even a bit of a sense of feeling like 
we're being treated as children, like getting out of lockdown with this drip feeding of what you're going to be able to do, like it's a a reward for being good almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is some resentment towards that. And again, everyone's moods and feelings are, are different and people clearly want straight talking at the moment. And, uh, you know, I wonder if Chris has had a similar experience to me that people's tolerance levels for nonsense coming from public officials is very low at the moment, very low. So there is no point trying to gild anything. You just have to be 100% upfront with people. Um, And, you know, I think in some ways it's made me a better MP. Um, So... Uh, you know, you've got to see the bright side of a lot of things and that's one thing that I'm taking away at least. I think it's it has made me connect with people a lot better and I've never been busier either. Mm. Um, I really haven't. This has mm. been a really, really busy time. Mm. Okay. Um, rainbow of moods, Chris, is that, is that, like I love the phrase, is that is that your experience? Oh, very much so. And Michelle and I talk most days so we compare notes about how our communities are doing and, and I'd agree with all that. I mean, I would say at the core of it, people are getting on with it. You know, it's like, well, what do we have to do? Um, you know, just tell us what we have to do and we'll get on with it. All Everything Michelle said about those moods is accurate, but at its heart people just want to do the right thing mm-hmm. and are doing the right thing, you know, in 99% of the circumstances. Uh, look, I look at it in sort of four categories, if you like, uh, in terms of what our communities are going through. Firstly, COVID itself. Like most people still despite the fact we've had big case numbers, would not know somebody who is COVID positive, but Mm -hmm. everybody would know somebody who's been impacted in some way. I mean, I've been in casual contact three times, you know, so you've got to go get your tests and wait for your negative before you're allowed out. Um, Many people are in that situation. There's testing facilities, you know, all around. There's one 200 metres from my house, which is just, you know, constantly busy. So there's COVID itself and, and the concern about COVID and not wanting to be sick and concern about you know, parents and grandparents and the elderly in particular. Uh, secondly, there's the economic dislocation, um, which is huge. Uh, you know, the reason why we're doing that this this podcast at this time is because I've just knocked off my shift at the Oz Harvest Food um, Canteen where we gave out today 800 hampers. You know, you don't do that if everything's going hunky-dory. But, um, 800 people in Granville is a lot of hungry people. Uh, there's a lot of economic hurt. I'm sure we can come back to that. Uh Thirdly is, as Michelle touched on, the, the feeling of discrimination and uncertainty. You know, the very strong view that, hey, we're trying to do the right thing here. Why are we constantly being called out? We didn't start this thing. If, if, the, if the state government had locked down Bondi, we wouldn't be in lockdown in Blacktown. You know, um, there was a very permissive atmosphere when it first started and now it's hit us and it's, you know, we've got a curfew. Um, you know, make one set of rules and apply them to everyone and make them clear, you know. I was pretty annoyed and I, I try not to be annoyed in a partisan way in this environment. I heard the Premier say a while ago, I'm, I'm over people saying they don't understand the rules. Well, if you made the rules bloody simpler, it would be bloody thought easier. You know, I've got a spreadsheet on my desk to help explain the rules. At one point, as I said before, I represent four local government areas. I have three sets of rules, um, you know, and people people genuinely want to do the right thing. But, you know, can I go five kilometres? I know I can go five kilometres for exercise, that's shopping. What if the shops are, you know, across the local government boundary, just really complex. And then fourthly is the disinformation, which I know Michelle and I and our colleagues are in a constant battle with, um, disinformation spread by, you know, people who for whatever reason are spreading anti-vax disinformation or conspiracy theories and sometimes from overseas, you know, I represent a big 
Iraqi community and there's been problems with the vaccine in Iraq and that's seeking here. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's problems with the vaccine in Iraq, there must be problems here, all that sort of stuff. So all the MPs in Western Sydney have been doing a magnificent job in spreading word, you know, trying to think of interview things. I've got, you know, some friends of mine who happen to play football at professional level to do videos with me and, you know, so young because there was a problem at one point with young men saying, you know, I'm bulletproof, I don't need to be vaccinated, all that sort of stuff. So they're the four categories that I see it in. And, yeah, everybody's, like, waiting for the 11 o'clock press conference. And then, as Michelle said, that anger and that discrimination also goes back to, I know we're not being too partisan, but about the, about the whole, if we had the bloody vaccine rollout under control, if we had quarantine, we wouldn't be in this terrible mess. Just let me pick up, um, <laughs> we've had a mind meld, Chris. That's basically the structure of the conversation in my mind, right? There's the sort of economic implications. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very interested to get to tap both of you about the misinformation challenges and how that's playing through communities because that seems to me to be... That that's quite visible even here, and and you live in, uh, you know, a much more ethnically diverse population than I do, right? So how that's playing out, and and uh, you know what what you can do to counter it. Um, the other thing that I'm sort of interested in is Michelle, you said obviously that um, Greenway's like absolutely killing it on vaccinations, right? People are lining up. There's not hesitancy, but then, you know, how does that sit alongside misinformation, right? Like that, uh, like there's a bunch of people who are not vaccine hesitant, in fact, would will not kill someone to get a vaccine, but almost, right? But then you've got this problem of, you know, people just, there's just, I'll just say what it is, there's so much shit, like basically circulating on the internet. Uh, and, and I know from mates myself, um, the more people basically search for um, uh, the more vaccine people, hesitant people search for information about the vaccines, the more the shit gets served up to them, right, because the algorithm determines this. So anyway, give me some on-the-ground insight into all that. I think that you're absolutely right about there's different cohorts. There's people who are always going to get vaccinated and have been vaccinated there's people who are anti-vaxxers that are never going to get vaccinated and don't want even want to have a conversation about it. But there's this cohort in the middle that for whatever reason are hesitant. Like some of them hold sincere, genuine fears and they need to have discussions. Their families need to have discussions. People who love them, their doctors, these are people who could be convinced to be vaccinated. There's other people who are putting it off for whatever reason um, and I think that is where incentives um, need to play a big role. Um, I don't know how big that cohort will end up being in my electorate, for example, but just looking at some of the vaccination rates in other states, I think there is a serious issue there about a lot of people um, who are putting it off. But I'm on a number of chat groups. Um, My husband's of Lebanese background. I'm on a number of family chat groups. And I'm extremely disturbed by what I see coming across there, smart people who have clearly fallen into this abyss of misinformation and want to talk to me about it all the time, send me videos um, that look, you know, asking me, oh, someone gave me this, is it legit? You know, and it is constant. Um, and I'm not saying it's confined to depending on ethnicity, but that is just one example. Um, I've also had some feedback from other um, ethnic groups that there's a few people who start 
either rumours or have misinterpreted what their church or their religion has said. Um, and often you believe the first thing you hear. And, you know, especially if, if you're not thinking about vaccination every hour of the day, you, you end up believing it. Um, but I think that there is, there's been very little done. And Chris, I don't know, you know, I don't get out that much anymore, but I would have expected there to be an advertising blitz for the last few months. Even if it wasn't, you know, we don't have a separate media market in Western Sydney as it's as it's defined, but we've got enough metro radio, um, we've got enough bus shelters and we've got enough outdoor advertising sites. I would have expected a blitz, multi-language, um, with some cooperation with um, local either settlement services groups or, um, or you know, other targeted areas where we know that there's uh, vaccine hesitancy, um, just saying the facts and it should be on TV. And either I've missed it or it just hasn't happened. Um, and it should have been happening from the get-go. Um, so I think that there is, there is something to be said also for the amount of in-language material that's been produced. I think a lot of it was doing catch-up. I think SBS... Um, certainly has a lot of resources there and had um, had been using them. But from the discussions I've had with our local multicultural services peak bodies, Melbourne had a lot of lessons from last year about how to communicate with people from um, linguistically diverse backgrounds and not a lot of that um, was picked up and certainly not in a hurry. Look, I know there was some ministerial consultative committee, uh, but I honestly feel like a lot of that was tick a box. We've ticked the box for multiculturalism. I'm sure Chris has been doing similar things, but I've been recruiting local people from a variety of backgrounds, Filipino, um, various subcontinent groups, um, to be uh, in videos that I've pushed out on a narrow cast um, basis as well, telling people to get vaccinated. So, yeah, and I do that happily because I think that is our job to get information out there and to keep our community safe. But it would have been nice with all the resources of government um, to have had this done on a really coordinated level. Um, and I think that could have made an, a huge difference. Mm. Mm. What about, Chris, I mean, obviously jump in if you've got any further reflections on that. I, yeah. I would like to agree with everything Michelle said, but just a couple of other points. I mean, yes, there's anti-vaccine and, you know, that they have strong views. There's political, what I call political anti-vaxxing, and I don't know about you, but I always thought of sort of anti-vaxxing as being sort of an issue of the fringe left, if you like, you know, the, um, that, that sort of, you know, attracted to the, towards the Greens almost, you know, uh, 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 a fringe um, libertarian left view. But mm -hmm. now it's political anti-vaxxing on the right, um, which One Nation and Clive Palmer are exploiting very cunningly, I must say, abhorrently in my view, but cunningly, you know, so it's all this conspiracy theory stuff, which they are really pushing very hard. It's having an impact. And there's AstraZeneca hesitancy uh, as, as opposed to vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, there's people who do want to be vaccinated, but to be fair to them, they've heard all these mixed messages. There's been 9pm press conferences for the Prime Minister saying we change the rules because AZ is no longer safe for this age cohort. You know, you know, I think 
Uh, while I do my best to combat it, it's very understandable. And then there's the disinformation. I just did want to share with you this little thing from Facebook, and Facebook is a big thing here, but I represent a very large Assyrian population who are Christians from Iraq, an Orthodox um, church. And uh, the the other day the head of the church in Australia, the, the archbishop, put a Facebook message up, and I just want to read it to you for a second because it tells you what we're dealing with here. Um, and, you know, how important some of these messages are. This is from the Archbishop. Some of the faithful have raised questions regarding the spiritual implications of the vaccine. Let me make it abundantly clear. The COVID-19 vaccine is not the mark described in the book of Revelations. One's salvation and inheritance of internal, eternal life will not be hindered by the COVID-19 vaccine. We implore you to be very careful of such false teaching. So it's out there that the vaccine is the devil's mark, mm. you know, and that's what we're going to deal with constantly. Mm. And so, you know, the archbishop's doing that, but Michelle's right. Instead of Ad saying, you know, arm yourself, which means nothing, you know, let's get some, re- I, I think really sort of the, the political virulent anti-vaxxers, they're gone, not much we can do about that um, apart from, you know, uh, no jab, no pay and all that sort of stuff. But those in the middle who are hesitant, really factual information, calm, methodical, based on, you know, evidence of, of, of research about what the concerns are and what works will work and make a difference. We've got 80% sort of first dose, first dose um, rates in both our electorates, but 20% is still a pretty big number. And if you haven't been vaccinated yet, you've got to, re- you've, you, there's something holding you back and we've got to get, we're not going to get to 100%, but we're going to get to as many of those 20% as we can. And the community is doing their best, but we can only do so much. So more leadership there would be welcome. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, it's such, oh, well, I mean, I'm just, yeah, God, it's just diabolical is the only word uh, for that kind of, you know, exploitation that's, you know, and misinformation that's running around. Um, what about just at a practical level, Chris, you mentioned uh, you've got a you've got a testing area 200 metres up the road or whatever you said. Um, I remember reading, uh, this was this was now some weeks ago, so when, when the outbreak really first started, that there really wasn't the infrastructure uh, there to support, uh, you know, the, the health needs of the population. Now, is, is that a sort of gross generalisation or...? No, it was very real at the time and, you know, that has changed now in terms of testing. Um, so the problem was, Catherine, that... There was an, an edict came out on like a, a, a Thursday afternoon um, that any essential workers in this community had to be tested every three days. And guess mm-hmm. what? They listened and they complied with the rules. Yeah. And they turned up at testing facilities. And guess what? They were lining up for six or seven hours. It was unconscionable, unconscionable. The announcement was made without the infrastructure because they didn't realise that people were actually going to listen and do what they were told and go and get tested. Mm-hmm. And I was visiting, you know, testing facilities, you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning and there were lines three kilometres long. I couldn't. I, I mean, I, I, I'd like to think I'm a fairly calm and methodical type of a guy. I was stressing out about what these people were going through, trying to, you know, I, I was just so outraged on their behalf of what was going on. And then they changed the rules and then to, to everybody's credit, then the testing facilities came and there were pop-up clinics going up in 48 hours, but it was all cut before the horse stuff. Um, now there's there is enough testing. Vaccinating, I've got a I'm, I've got a vaccination hub in my electorate, which I'm very grateful for at Perrywood. Um, uh, Michelle and Ed Husick have run a big campaign to get one in Blacktown, uh, which I support as well. Um, 
so vaccinations is a little bit different to, to testing, but, you know, yes, it was patchy to start, was some patchy, it was bad to start with, but it has caught up. And Michelle, what about hospitals and ramping and all that sort of stuff we've been reading about here in Canberra and in other places around the country? Uh, what's your assessment of all that? Well, a couple of weeks ago, there were the first reports of ambulances being turned away at Blacktown and Westmead hospitals, which has made people very concerned. And you know, I've been very conscious. I, In a past life, I served um, on the Western Sydney Area Health Service, so I have some understanding about the health economics of Western Sydney hospitals. I think the key responsibility here was twofold, um, to make sure that people knew that if they dialed triple O, they would get taken care of. Um, but secondly, recognising that there has been severe shortages compared to our eastern suburbs counterparts in Western Sydney hospitals for many years, um, for many different categories of treatments. But people need to know that if they do present to hospital, they're going to be taken care of. But unfortunate circumstances you know, when you start having patients being uh, turned away, when you start having, I think it's over a 1,000 um, healthcare personnel furloughed at any given time because they're close contacts. And, yeah, I even asked a question of Scott Morrison about this and just got completely mansplained about, you know, federal funding to hospitals and surge capacity and um, the private hospital network coming in. The reality is that... These frontline um, service personnel, uh, we owe them an eternal debt, but the number of um, first-hand accounts that I'm receiving of nurses doing back-to-back shifts, being thrown into the deep end, doing tasks for which um, they aren't qualified to do yet but they're doing to the best of their ability, um, and even just talking about um, ventilators, you know, we've got all these ventilators. You need people who are qualified to operate them um, as well. Otherwise, you know, you're like the Monty Python, the hospital, you know, the, the machine that goes ping, you know. Um, unfortunately, I think this is going to expose the underinvestment over many, many years that's gone into um, our public health system. Um, but at the same time, I have I have absolute confidence in our frontline personnel. Um, I don't think that it's um, I think that it's counterproductive um, to be merchants of doom on this. But mm. at the same time, sure. people want to see a plan. They want to know that they they're going to be taken care of. They want to know that there is going to be the capacity to cope. So they need to be given confidence um, and. I don't know how forthcoming um, that has been, um, but you know, we're doing the best we can and we're so grateful to our frontline personnel who are doing their utmost. And now, guys, tell me about economics and lockdowns. Let's kind of think about that for a minute. Now, Michelle, you said people are weary with the lockdowns, which, you know, everybody in the country who is locked down currently can relate to. You get the impression, distant from Sydney, that non-compliance has been a bigger issue this time in the lockdowns this year than it was in the in the first lockdowns last year. What's the reality of that, though, on the ground? And also sort of, you know, adjacent to that question about compliance is if people are really worried that uh, their businesses are going to go to the wall, they're going to lose their jobs. If that if that is a 
a present fear for people, then that obviously plays through to compliance. So either of you jump in, what's the reality that you have observed through your, you know, your discussions with people in your communities? I think the first thing to note is our communities are commuter societies. Like a lot of people need to travel outside their local area for work. They do every job from those frontline health staff uh, we mentioned to uh, logistics, they're in the services sector, they do everything. And by and large, you know, we both have big industrial estates um, and big retail hubs in our electorate, but by and large, people leave the electorate to go to work. Um, and just think about it, though, if you're in a family, you're not that well off, you've got a mortgage to pay, you've got mouths to feed... Um, if you have symptoms, a lot of people are going to get tested and thank you to all the people who have been tested and have you know, foregone incomes um, for doing that. But let's face it, there are a lot of people who are still going to feel compelled um, to leave home and go to work. Um, that's the reality of uh, living in uh, these commuter electorates and the type of jobs that people hold. But, look, I, I would agree with Chris that, you know, in terms of compliance the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. And that, I think, has been the most frustrating area, just the lack of clarity, the number of changes that have happened over the 10 weeks, the changes in the rules. And Chris mentioned how, you know, announcements have been made and there's been little planning or infrastructure to back up that announcement. I mean, that situation with the testing wasn't an isolated incident. We then had the case of you needed to get a permit um, if you're an authorised worker, to leave your LGA. It was announced on a Friday to come into effect a week later and literally hours before it came into effect. There still wasn't the ability to register. And then when this portal did open on the Service New South Wales website, oh, who would have known that it had been flooded with all these people who needed to get permits and the site crashed? Mm. Um, so just this lack of... Force, very basic foresight in planning has you know, really frustrates people. And Ian, I can understand, Chris has probably heard a similar thing, I'm trying to do the right thing. Why isn't the government doing the right thing by me? Why are they doing this to me? Like people feel, especially if you're, you know, you haven't seen your family um, for 10 weeks, kids haven't seen their grandparents, you know, people are putting up with immense financial and mental hardship and why is the government doing this to me? That is, that pervades um, a lot of people's thinking. I'm not sure if Chris has had similar. Yeah, totally. And just just briefly, I mean, on the question of compliance, look, the vast majority of people are complying. You know, I, I really see that as I as I move around. You know, we're essential workers. Uh, some would beg to differ, but we are officially regarded as essential workers, Michelle and I. <laughs> well, me too. Others would beg to differ, but there you go. Right. Right, yes. But, I mean, I think it was a real misunderstanding. I remember in the early stages I did an interview with Fran Kelly, and this is, let me be very clear, not a criticism of Fran. She's a very good journalist. But the question she asked me was, I think, um, symptomatic of of the communication challenge. She asked me early, it appears the message isn't getting through to your community. People are still moving around. Are they get, is the message getting through? And I said, well, Fran, there's two things. One, we're, as Michelle said, we're in a commuter workforce. Um, we're an industrial, logistics, transport-based workforce. Uh, we work in factories or, or we move things around or in retail, It's none of which can be done from home. 
So, you know, when you set a heat map of movement, it's not people going to the beach. They're doing their jobs. And if they stop doing their jobs, guess what? Sydney stops because, you know, I represent the largest industrial state of the Southern Hemisphere. We've got big retail distribution centres, warehouses, et cetera. Um, if you want essential goods in the supermarket, they come by and large from Western Sydney. So people are people are, are moving around because it's their job. And secondly, um, this goes to the issue of, you know, um, communication. Um, you've got to understand people say, is communication in language? Well, language is maybe, you know, 50% of the challenge. It's what you say as well. You know, I could take you to parts of my electorate where I could take you down the street and, you know, I know it's five houses of the same family, brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, they've bought one by one and they've bought in a row or, you know, within mm. within mm. a few houses of each other. And it's, you know, joint childcare, joint dinner cooking, uh, carpooling to work. When, and, you know, you've got to be very careful how you communicate because if they hear stay in your family, it's not beauty, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, mm. But if you say stay in your household and that does not mean your brothers and sisters three doors down, you know, that has to stop too. That's a hard message. But, you know, I've had to communicate it on behalf of the authorities. Mm. Um, but that really wasn't. In the you know, it's not mum and yes. dad and two kids and making three beds. It's it's yeah. A, yeah there are it's you've really got to know what you're dealing with in terms of communication. Yeah, yeah, it's such it's such an interesting point. It's that the concept of what home is, like whether the boundaries of home is entirely entirely different. There's a very different conception of family, and you know, families are much bigger uh, in many different communities and much more sort of closely intertwined. And so, the family unit. When you say stay in, in your unit, can mean something very different and something very dangerous, frankly. Well, and, and it explains the sort of early patterns of infections too, that, that dynamic absolutely, in a way that I've not really uh, heard explained clearly before, But and I understand the, the gap in the comms that you're talking about. We're on the clock, so let's finish with, uh, with this. Now, I, I commend you both for... Um, uh, you're obviously reflecting the mood of your electorates at the moment, but uh, we have kept the partisan um, stuff to a minimum. Um, but I, I need to take you to politics and uh, and your assessment of the political implications of what's happening now. Now, um, your colleagues, well, just people, you know, in Parliament over the last 12 months or so have said to me um, uniformly across parties that, People in the community at the moment are much more focused on their state governments than they are on the federal scene, and that makes sense because obviously state governments in this pandemic have had all the power. But I'm just interested in how you think this sort of plays out in the federal arena. Like We're recording on a Thursday for disclosure to the listeners. Um, I've just come back from a press conference uh, that Scott Morrison had an hour or so ago. Um, His message was... Uh, basically that we sort of have to, it's yeah, it's bad, but we're going to push on and, and get through. And it's impossible for me from where, where I'm standing right now to understand how that works or does not work on the ground, right? That sort of crack on, yeah, it's, it's crap, it's difficult, you know, things might get better be, or get worse before they get better. I mean, I just don't know. Like, is, is, does that resonate, not resonate? What do people think about Scott Morrison on the ground at the moment? What's your, what's your assessment? I think people want to open up. They want to be safe and they want reassurance that the opening up when it occurs will be safe and they're not getting that at the moment. Um, you know, of course, everybody supports, you know, the national plan and all that and all that stuff. But 
you know, what's the plan for our hospitals? What's the plan? What's the plan with different vaccination rates? Our vaccination rates have come up, but, you know, what if vaccination rates are higher in some areas than others? I think there's a lot of concern about all of that to go. And to answer your question about the political implications, well, you know, there's a long way to go. But I think, again, I think, frankly, the view that Scott Morrison is full of it is something that you would get a wide degree of support for. It's just you can't believe what this bloke says because it just changes all the time. And, you know, we were told we were first in the queue and we're not. You know, it's just a different message every day and it's not consistent. So I think he's uh, lost a lot of the authority and credibility of the office that he might have had this time last year. Mm, Interesting. Michelle, what do you reckon? I think part of Scott Morrison's conundrum at the moment is He's responding to, you know, the Crosby text of focus groups. You need to start talking about hope. You need to start talking about light at the end of the tunnel. You need to talk about all these things. Um, so, you know, he'll, he'll hook on a buzzword. He's been hooking on, you know, opening up safely. You know, you can, it's, it's pretty transparent. I think the problem for him is they do these focus groups and the mood in lockdown will change from one day mm. to the next. Mm. So sometimes his... Uh, you know, enthusiasm for a particular message, people are like, yeah, I've been there, I've had that. Why are you raising this with me again? Um, But I think Chris is absolutely right in terms of this guy's credibility has really taken a beating and he is rat cunning. Um, He's going to do whatever it takes to win. He believes in nothing um, other than um, keeping Labor out of office. And I think the two things over the past week that have hurt him. I think the Pfizer uh, ordering revelations yesterday I think were devastating. Um, But, again, I don't know how that plays out in three, six months' time whenever the next election is. Um, I think the only certainty is that no one knows what is going to happen because anything um, can happen. But there was something about the Father's Day episode that just smelled bad to people. And I totally get it. The guy is the Prime Minister of Australia. You know, it's not unusual to be coming and going back and forth. Why the secrecy? Why this convoluted explanation? And the first thing that was coming to mind in sort of like my family chat groups and, you know, as we were doing cold calls to people, people were saying, well, I'd like to see my dad too. I'd like to, I would have loved to have seen my dad on Father's Day, but he lives seven kilometres away, you know, it's real, real stuff like that. Um, and it wasn't so much the cover-up, it was sort of the duplicity and it was, it was it's getting into almost vibe land now. Like there was something that just wasn't right and it, it probably would have been okay if he didn't have form, you know. The, the guy's got form in this area. Um And it goes back to the comments I made earlier on people's tolerance level for that kind of duplicity. It's very low because our energy is being spent, you know, being around our families, trying to do home learning, um, trying to do our jobs from home, trying to commute and do everything else if you are an essential worker. Um, So people's minds are very focused on the now and just getting through, um, you know, and yeah, I just I just think tolerance levels are very low. How that will change um, come the next election really is anyone's guess. But 
you know, if I was, I, I am a punter, but I'm not putting money on this. Yeah, yeah. Well, none of us have a crystal ball, just to be clear. Um, uh, thank you both. I really appreciate it. Uh, I feel like I'm more connected to what's going on in both of your communities, and I appreciate that. I know you're both busy. I know it's bedlam, really, where you are at this point in time. Um, uh, so thanks for sharing that with the listeners. Thank you to uh, Miles Martignoni, the EP of the show. Uh, thank you to you guys for listening and sharing and all that jazz. Uh, we'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.